Mike, have you ever gotten stuck at the airport or in a train station? I have, actually quite recently, and you had to come pick me up and take me back to your house. Uh, there there <laughs> are true. a few things um, about the amount of planes that I take, my jet-setting lifestyle, Stephen, uh, that are as annoying or as frustrating as being stuck in a, in a terminal. Have you ever been stranded on a boat? Luckily, I can't say that I have. You don't, don't do much water travel, do you? Not too much, no. No. It'd be a long, a long time to get from your mm-hmm. country to my country on a boat. It would be a very long time. So I guess you were not in the Suez Canal in 1967. No, not, not that instance. No, I wasn't, no. <laughs> Weren't around. Well, if you had been around, you would have had a very bad time. Today, we are talking about the Yellow Fleet, a group of 15 ships trapped in the Great Bitter Lake section after the Six-Day War. The Six-Day War was fought over six days between June 5th and June 10th, 1967, between Israel and its neighbors Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. Now, we got to do a little history lesson, but I promise we'll get to the boats. Uh, Eleven years before this 1967 conflict, Israel had invaded the Sinai Peninsula, which sits between the Mediterranean Sea to the north and the Red Sea to the south. Israel was subsequently forced to withdraw, but won a guarantee that the Straits of Tehran would remain open. This meant Israel still had access to the Red Sea. The United Nations Emergency Force was also deployed along the border, and there was no demilitarization agreement. By the time the summer of 1967 rolled around, tension increased after Egyptian President Gamal Nasser announced the Straits would be closed to all Israeli vessels. Egypt then mobilized its forces along the border with Israel, and on the 5th of June, Israel launched what it claimed were a series of preemptive airstrikes against Egyptian airfields. As you may imagine, claims relating to the series of events are contested, but we're not here to judge history, Mike. I'm going to say that's probably for the best. Yeah, (laughs) no no judgment here over the Six-Day War. Nope, none. The short version of the rest of the short war, is that Israel inflicted heavy damage on Egypt and took over the entire peninsula and then took territory from both Jordan and Syria. On June the 11th, 1967, a ceasefire was signed. Israel had lost only a few hundred troops compared to the over 20,000 on the other side. Wow. Israel's military success was attributed to the element of surprise and well-executed airstrikes. Preemptive often means surprising, I guess. Mm-hmm. So the stage is set. We've talked about the war. Let's get back to our friends in the Yellow Fleet. In June of 1967, when this was going on, there were 15 ships sailing northward through the Suez Canal as the war broke out. That is a real wrong place, wrong time kind of situation. <laughs> it really is. Uh, six day, six day war, and you're right in the middle of it. Not, not, not ideal. And it is worth just clarifying right now. These were not any type of ships to do with battle. Right, no, they, they, these they are were just, just there. ships carrying cargo. Yeah. Both ends of the canal were closed, and after three days, it became apparent that the canal would remain blocked for some time as a result of the scuttling of ships blocking its passage. Ships, other wreckage, and then my personal favorite part of a bridge were sunk to block the canal. In addition to the vessels that were sunk, there were a number of sea mines not something you want to hit, that prevented Mm -hmm. navigation, forcing the ships to anchor in the widest part of the canal called the Great Bitter Lake. But wait, there's more. The Egyptian government worked to keep the canal closed to all shipping indefinitely as Israel had possession of the entire eastern bank of the passageway. As a result, for the eight years after the short war, the Israeli and Egyptian armed forces faced off against each other on either side of the Suez Canal. It was a standoff that left the waterway a type of no-man's land. 
Now, let's talk about those ships a little bit. There was the MS Nordwind, which was loaded with 8,656 gross tons of T-shirts. <laughs> How many shirts is that? A That's lot. incredible. <laughs> That's a lot of T-shirts. The MS Munsterland carried eggs, fruit, and other foodstuff. The American SS Observer had the largest cargo, 17,614 gross tons of wheat. And as someone who lives that hashtag gluten-free lifestyle, that makes me a little tingly inside. What a surprise that the American ship was the largest ship with the largest cargo. What a surprise. Naturally. My own country's MS Agapenor was moving plastic toys for the now defunct store chain Woolworths. Some real uh, deadly cargo aboard these ships. Four months after being stranded, the officers and crews of the ships met to found the Great Bitter Lake Association, which provided mutual support. Crew members continued to regularly meet aboard their own ships. They organized social events, founded a yachting club, and my personal favorite, held the Bitter Lake Olympic Games to complement the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City. That is incredible. A little, a little village of boats. It's so cute. Yeah. It's like a successful and less paranoid Sealand. If you don't know anything about Sealand, we'll include a link in our show notes to an episode we did about Sealand. If you've never heard the Sealand episode, then you are robbing yourself of an experience. You really are. <laughs> Boat races were arranged and soccer games were played on the largest of the ships in the Great Bitter Lake Association, the MS Port Invercargill, while church services were held aboard a German ship. Movies were shown on the Bulgarian freighter Vassil Levski, and the Swedish Glara proved popular as it had a pool. <laughs> That's the one you want to go hang out on. Yeah. So you go to a boat to play soccer, and you go to church on a different ship, and then you go swimming. Mm -hmm. It's pretty great. Except for the fact that you're stuck in the Suez Canal. <laughs> Aside from that part, it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Over time, it was necessary to reduce the number of crew slowly whittling away this wonderful little civilization. In 1969, the ships were gathered into several groups to further reduce the number of crew necessary for their upkeep. Because people weren't being held there. Um, they were really just staying there because they didn't really know what else to do or where else to go. Right. The crew that were left maintained the vessels. They rotated every three months after this point. And in 1972, the last crew members of the German ships were finally sent home with the maintenance of the ships left to a Norwegian company. A postal system evolved using handcrafted stamps, which have become collector's items around the world. Naturally. The Egyptian Postal Authority recognized the stamps, allowing their use worldwide. you got to keep that junk mail moving, man. You can't leave anybody out. It's true. In early 1975, the Suez Canal was once again opened for international transport. In May of that year, the two German vessels reached their destination, cheered by more than 30,000 spectators. I'm sure that by this point, the eggs, fruit, and other food stuff that I'm assuming was aboard the MS Munsterland, which I'm assuming is the German ship, probably weren't in the best condition. No, I like to think that they got turned into omelets a long time ago. They were reportedly the only ships to have returned to their home port under their own power. The other 12 had to be towed out. That's <laughs> a bummer. Yeah. This is an incredible topic. Uh, Alexi sent this in. This is great. Thank you for sending it in. I did not know what to expect getting into this, but the idea that there's a civilization, a little, a little civilization formed by crews, they're trapped on this... These boats in the middle of a standoff after a war that only lasted a week. It's pretty awesome. Pretty ungenious worthy. So we have, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be doing a live show in Chicago. This is, this is going to be in early October. It's going to be our first ever live show 
for our genius. Unfortunately, all the tickets are sold out because we're, we're bolting this on to another event that we're doing whilst in Chicago. But what we wanted to ask you, dear listener of Ungenius, is to send in to us any recommendations for Chicago-based topics that we could cover uh, on this live episode. So you can send them in to us at, at Ungenius on Twitter, or you can send them to Stephen. He's at ISMH, and I am at imike. Um, Stephen, where can people find all of the links for this episode, including the link to the Sealand episode? Relay.fm slash ungenist slash 33. I think that does it for this week, Mike. You bet. Until our next floating civilization forms, say goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. Adios.